Uh, the reading this evening is from Isaiah chapter 1, starting at verse 1 and going through to chapter 2, verse 4, and it can be found on page 685 of the Church Bibles. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and bruises and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burn with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left, like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of your God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling on my courts, stop bringing meaningless, offering, meaningless offerings your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong, learn to do right. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless, Please plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, 
Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges as in the days of old, your counsellors as at the beginning. Afterwards you will be called the city of righteous, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be, both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will, work, will become tinder, and his work a spark. Both will burn together, with no one to quench the fire. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountains of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountains of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This is the word of the Lord. The church. Um, to find which pocket I put it in. Um, and um, you may not be very familiar, or you may not even have heard of Isaiah, apart from perhaps in a carol service when they read out those one or two verses which are kind of well known. Um, and you certainly probably won't know much, if anything, about the Assyrians. But you will know where they come from, because it's the area that ISIS particularly controls at the moment. This is the, the area in the Middle East that ISIS would like to control. It's pretty extensive, from uh, right in the south of Syria, right up to the Turkish border, covering half of Iraq. Fortunately, they are shrinking, and the dark red represents where they are now, and the rather paler red is where they've been uh, removed from. And although Aleppo has been uh, the focus of our attention in Syria for the last month or two, there is also a major battle going on in a place called Mosul, which is on the northeast and kind of uh, at the top of there, which is there. And Mosul, in biblical times, was called Nineveh. And Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian kingdom. And in Mosul, there is a museum. They have got a lot of their artifacts from, you know, their heyday was around about sort of 800 BC to about 600 BC. They were a formidable empire, and they've collected a lot of their stuff and other stuff in their nice museum. Unfortunately, ISIS think it's a good idea to try and chop them all up with a stone grinder, which is a tragedy. But in the days when the British Empire ruled about a quarter of the world, including Iraq, we basically nicked a lot of their stuff and we put it in our British Museum. And there you are, exactly the same things stuck in the British Museum. And there's a, a gallery behind which has a lot of uh, stuff on that I'll show you in a minute. 
So we're looking at Isaiah and the Assyrian crisis of 745 to around about 701 from chapter 1. This is a reconstruction of one of the uh, entries to Nineveh. You can see the scale of it when you think here is a bloke walking. Massive. You need lots of money and power to be able to build stuff like that. And here we have um, a place. This is this guy here is called uh, Jehu, who um, was one of the kings of Israel. And he is kind of bowing and bringing tribute, basically bribes, to King Shalmaneser the uh, third in 825 BC. That's one of those things on that kind of corridor I showed you. It's, it's a whole relief. They carved their history. That was one of the ways in which they recorded what went on. And he's basically bowing down, showing homage and respect to this greater power and bringing a lot of money so that the Assyrians won't invade Israel. So uh, there are sort of a number of kings of Assyria that we will mention. There's this guy here, Tiglath-Pileser III. I like saying that because... Yeah, and uh, he, he had this purple area, but he started expanding. And then one of his descendants, Zargon II, you know, got this green area. And then there's Sennacherib, who, uh, who captured Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, and except for Jerusalem. So you're familiar with that part of the world, as I say. The good old British Museum, which is free to get into. You can go to the Department of Western Asiatic Antiquities and you can look at all this stuff. See, there's the corridor with all those reliefs on the wall and these big things here. And it gives you some idea of the scale. These are people. And, uh, um, so those, those things are probably 14, 15, 16 foot high. And that's how it might have looked. Um, in situ in that period of time, about 700 uh, BC. There's the corridor with all the reliefs on. And let me introduce you to some of the big players. Here is Tiglath-Pileser III, my favourite. Um, he had a nickname, Pulu, P-U-L. So uh, it's much easier to say. Then there was Shalmaneser V, who was followed by Sargon II, and then Sennacherib. They went in for nice, long kind of, you know, beards, which are all plaited. Must take a lot of time to do that. Anyway, the Assyrians were the, the they, they had the first professional army in the world. They were incredibly disciplined. They were very well equipped. And they were excessively cruel. They had uh, archers uh, cav on cavalry. They had archers in chariots. They had foot soldiers with big shields, rather like the Romans, and uh, spears and stuff. They had guys with uh, slings. And uh, here is some uh, slingshot that has been excavated in a place called Lakesh, which they successfully besieged in 701 BC outside Jerusalem. And, uh, and they had a Dalit as well. <laughs> I'm a, I forget whether I showed this to the morning or the evening service, but there you are, there is a Dalek, really, see? Doctor Who was there. Well, maybe not quite. They may have got the idea from that, might not they, really, I suppose. 
but actually this is what it is. It's a siege uh, machine, and uh, they would have wheels on the bottom there. And then on the top of the tower, you've got the archers who are sort of keeping the guys on the battlement occupied so that these guys down below here can be kind of, you know, hauling this sort of ramming arm to and fro so as to knock the wall down, really. And when they knocked the wall down, they were excessively, excessively cruel. They would flay people alive. They'd stretch you out, stake you out, and then whip you or skin you. And uh, this is them doing it, flaying their prisoners alive, and they're beheading one by the looks of it. He's holding up a, a head there. Grim. Or sometimes they would uh, capture you, and they would put a hook through your lip and uh, carry you around. I mean, obviously there's a bit of propaganda here, because the Assyrians aren't that much bigger than probably these Jews. But, you know big helmet, long beard, etc. But they've got this guy on a chain round his lip and then he's poking out one of his eyes. How cruel. When you've won your battle, you do such things uh, like that. Or they might impale you. Or they might cart you off in handcuffs to uh, slavery and deportation. And of course, your government, your rulers would have to pay massive amount of uh, tribute to the king. Tough times. Now, we aren't just um, confined to the Bible to know about this particular period of history. Um, the Assyrians, as well as kind of depicting it on reliefs all along their walls, also um, kept records on these prisons. This is the Taylorian prison. Again, it's in the British Museum. It is one of the annals of Sennacherib, written in 689 BC, in which it records um, you know, Sennacherib's uh, conquests. Well, and a lot of things do corroborate you know, well with the Bible. It does have an Assyrian spin, so although he mentions how he conquered the whole of Judah and he conquered Lachesh and what have you, it doesn't mention that he actually failed to conquer Jerusalem. So he's a bit selective. Anyway, the good old British Museum has that. And there are other prisons of Sennacherib in other parts of the world. There's one in Chicago. There's one also in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And they wrote in this cuneiform script which, like me, you've got no idea what it says. But um, this is their, their squiggle, their, their chips, and this is how it might transliterate into the English alphabet. And here's one bit already translated for you, so I didn't have to give it out as a kind of exercise. Um, that uh, here you have Sennacherib saying, as for Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom in 701, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. Well, he did. He just fails to mention that his entire army was wiped out by an angel of the Lord. And so he didn't capture uh, Jerusalem. So the point of that is to say we're talking about real people at real times where there is extra-biblical corroboration to basically the, the basic facts and the style and the, the cultural context and the historical context of the day. So, 
Right. So if you like to look on the back of this evening's song sheet, it's quite important to try and get our heads around where all this fits in. So basically, 2,000 years BC was when there were the patriarchs, people like Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. And Jacob, as you know, had a number of sons, one of whom was Joseph, who they sold into slavery. And that's how he went down into Egypt when there was the famine. By then he was the uh, prime minister. He was able to save the embryonic people of God. But when they were down in Egypt, they ended up eventually getting into slavery until about 1300 BC when Moses led the people out during the time of the Exodus. And then you have the settlement wandering around the Sinai Desert. And then they conquered the land and they had the period of the judges. And then they started having the kingdom and David and Solomon. That was the kind of pinnacle of the, uh, the history of, uh, of Israel, around about 1000 BC. Then the kingdoms divided between the north and the south. The kingdom in the north was largely called uh, Israel and what centred on Samaria, and the one in the south was called Judah, centred on Jerusalem. And um, Isaiah was a prophet from Jerusalem. In fact, he was probably quite a significant civil servant of some kind. He obviously has easy access to the king, and he's obviously well-educated and familiar with all court life. And then, uh, that's the period we're looking at, but a um, hundred years or so after you have the time of people like Jeremiah and you have when the Babylonians conquered and took them off into exile. And then many of them returned under with Nehemiah um, around about sort of 450 or so BC. So that's the sort of timeline. So you can picture where we are. We're around about 750 to 700 BC. And you'll see that the, uh, there is a structure to the book of Isaiah. I mean, chapters 1 to 37 focus on that time that I've put there, 740, 686. The great stress in that part of the book of Isaiah is upon um, the aspect of the messianic hope of the person coming is a king, he is a ruler. And the style of these are recorded speeches. Isaiah was a kind of oral prophet. He kind of spoke in the public domain and he's gathered together what he said, and they formed this book of Isaiah. And the thrust of his message is that the people are rebellious, just in case you didn't get that from when you listened to the reading. And then there is from sort of 38 to 55, which wasn't written around 30 AD, but that's what it's focusing on. That's focusing on Jesus, who will be the servant. You know, the Messiah has different aspects. He is a king, but he is a servant. And that section is quite carefully written. And as uh, we'll see, it's particularly focused on the atonement. You may have heard of the suffering servant. You've heard, read Isaiah 53, for example. And you think, yeah, that's Jesus. And then there's the last sort of 10 verses or so about the future. Sometimes it is sometimes future for us too where the messianic aspect that's stressed is that we're going to have an anointed conqueror who kind of uh, winds it all up and establishes God's order once again. Again, carefully written 
and the thrust is about eternal life. So the whole thing, the whole of the book, is held together by this messianic focus, who we clearly see as we go through is looking forward to Jesus. And Isaiah sees various aspects of this coming Messiah. He's a king, he's a servant, he's an anointed conqueror. The picture is of a king ruling the world, but he can only do so if the servant, through his sacrifice of himself for the people's rebellion against the king, opens up the way for them to come But it can't be fully realised until the conqueror creates a world free of all adverse opposition. No wonder Isaiah is often given to Bible students as the best way into understanding the message of the Old Testament, or indeed, in fact, the Bible. Because we have the king of creation. We have the servant who redeems us. We have the anointed conqueror who recreates a new heaven and a new earth, which we see happen when there is the return of Christ. Well, now I need you to, um, to look at this uh, leaflet so that you get an, an angle on the kind of history, you know, the context. Otherwise, you, you just can't make sense of it. And also a tiny bit of geography here. So what we have here... Um, is that um, the time of Isaiah operating, particularly the first part of chapters 1 to 39, which is this period, 745 to 701, was a crucial time in Israel's history. And he ministered through the reigns of all these kings who are listed, Uzziah when he started, Hezekiah when he finished. And at the time of Uzziah, the dominant power in the world, um, in the ancient Near East, no idea what was happening in China at the time, um, was Assyria. And Uzziah had taken advantage of the lull afforded by unrest within Assyria and uh, the crippling of another neighbouring power, namely that of Damascus. And so for Uzziah, it had been a time of peace and prosperity. But then he died in 740, and that marked the end of an era. And his son Jotham's reign coincided with fresh Assyrian campaigns under Tiglath-Pileser III. And the map on the other page, with the kind of uh, arrows and things, outlines a series of events that affected the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember, Judah is what is called the the kingdom centred on Jerusalem. Israel is the kingdom centred on Samaria in the north. So in the first stage, Damascus and the northern kingdom of Israel, so Damascus and Samaria, they put pressure on Jotham, the new young king of Judah, and then his successor Ahaz to join them in rebellion against Assyria because they perceived Assyria to be internally weak at the time. But Isaiah, in stage two, advises that Judah remain neutral. In response, the king of Israel marches up to uh, Jerusalem in order to depose Ahaz and replace him with a puppet king. Judah manages to uh, defend themselves, but with heavy losses, and Ahaz manages to avoid being deposed. In other words, the northern kingdom failed. 
But in stage three, the pressure becomes too much for Ahaz. He doesn't know if he's going to be able to withstand the pressure from Damascus and Syria much longer. So he decides to go and be a, a vassal, a kind of um, subsidiary state under the Assyrians, and he pays the Assyrians a lot of money. And in response, Tiglath-Pileser III smashes Damascus in 732 and then invades Israel as far as the south of Galilee. Now, when Tiglath-Pileser was succeeded by his son Shalmaneser V, Israel takes this as an opportunity to transfer its allegiance to Egypt. And in response, Shalmaneser lays siege to Samaria, defeats it, deports the upper classes. That's in 722 BC. And the reign of Ahaz in the Bible comes under... Uh, sharp criticism from the prophets because he was, a, he was adversely influenced by his political alignment with the Assyrians. He was into child sacrifice. In fact, he sacrificed his own child to the god Molech. And he reacts very cynically towards Isaiah. And he subjects the nation to Assyria and he adopts Assyrian worship, and they have Assyrian altars in the temple in Jerusalem. And he allows a great deal of social injustice. And that seems to be the focus of uh, Isaiah's chapters, early chapters in his book. As can be seen in later studies, Hezekiah, who took over in 716, was of a different mindset to Ahaz. Although he was a, a real politique, he recognised that, yeah, he had to kind of show respect and suck up to the Assyrians politically. He didn't do so religiously. He didn't take on board their religious ideas and uh, allow them to infect the uh, religion of the one true God. So... What we have is we have these speeches made during his ministry and they have been written down and recorded so that we might know the situation that was happening at that time. And what Isaiah does is to tell the tale of two cities, what Jerusalem is like and what it should be like. You probably know that in the Old Testament there are two principal cities. There is Babel or Babylon, in Genesis 11, they're the city who thought they could kind of build a ziggurat and reach heaven. And there is Jerusalem. Babel is the first city mentioned in the Bible. And it was famous from beginning to end for its humanism. It was a self-centered city. Human beings are in control, building their world, determining their own future. Jerusalem on Mount Zion, and so it's sometimes also known as Zion, was supposed to somehow be radically different from Babel, Babylon. It was captured by King David. The Ark of the Covenant was uh, brought to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God on earth, a sign that he was with his people. And eventually a temple was built and uh, 
Again, it too illustrated that uh, God is present there with his people. It is God's city. The city and its inhabitants orientate their lives around God. And these two cities are a contrast. One ruled by God, the other ruled by humanity. One me-centred and the other God-centred. And Isaiah is a book about Jerusalem from beginning to end, that it is God's city, and his dream for it is that it might be a place, a place where the people of God live and rejoice, and from which God is able to move out from there to actually embrace, ultimately, the whole world. Unfortunately, though that's the dream in Isaiah, It was a long way off being anything like a reality. As we now know, that is only going to be realised at the end of time when the Lord Jesus returns and conquers all opposition and establishes perfect peace and harmony. The reality in Isaiah's day was that Jerusalem had become much like Babylon. So let's turn to the passage and again on the, the... the evening service, you'll see a little overview. You'll see that um, three facets of the contemporary scene in Isaiah's day stand out for him. There was a national political calamity. Then there was a religious deterioration or decline. Then there's a social collapse. But although verse 24 is about punishment, verse 26 is about hope. And chapter 2 starts off with the great hope that God has for Jerusalem in his grand plans. And in between most of 1 and 2, we see how the tension is resolved between the way he's going to punish Israel and yet the hope he has for it. Between a city whose people are under the judgment of God because of their rebellion and yet for whom there is, remarkably, an incredibly bright future. So uh, follow with me, if you will, the national calamity. God and his people, you see, had an agreement. It's called the covenant. It was the the primary one that they're operating under is the mosaic one. And uh, there was was, uh, God's part to the deal, and there was their part to the deal. The deal was struck um, on Mount Sinai 